Morning, church. Great to see you. Great to see your smiling faces, most of you. Um, um, I am uh, really privileged to be here um, delivering the message today. I'm going to say a prayer and just that, um, that it's not mine, but it's God's message. So let's just bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this time, time that you created way back in the beginning because you knew we needed it. So we're thankful that we can be here together uh, as community in worship of you, in giving you glory, uh, but also to be challenged, uh, to be challenged anew. God, it's my prayer that your Holy Spirit works us over today, um, goes deep into who we are um, and to ask, where are we going? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm doing the old double barrel today, so we'll see how we go. I've got the handheld mic, I've got the um, clicker. So bear with me, I'm not that talented. I want to start with a statement and then I want to ask you a question. We are all becoming someone. No matter what your age, we are all still becoming someone. And the question I have for each and every one of you that I want us to really dwell upon today is, is who are you becoming? And if I could follow up, is do you like who you're becoming? Now, the default answer, I'm sure, if you were just to think of it very, very quickly, would be, well, of course, I know who I'm becoming, and of course I like who I'm becoming. But sometimes upon deeper reflection, or sometimes you may know instantly, actually there is a dissatisfaction or, or, or a discontent whereby actually we're not happy with who we're becoming. Something's gone awry, something is not quite right. And if we continue on that trajectory, would you like who you are becoming in a year's time, five years' time, ten years' time? Sometimes we feel like it's out of our control about who we are and who we are becoming and it is the message today to correct that. Who are you becoming? Whether you're a young child, whether you're one of our older members or anyone in between, we are still becoming someone. But the question is who? It is a biblical truth that we become what we worship. We become what we worship. A great example is found in the Psalms. And here it is. It says, But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And listen to this, verse 8, those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. The message is we become what we worship. Now, I don't know about you, I remember the last time I shared here, I'm not sure if it's a children's story or the message, but I shared my love of someone when I was younger. Um, I didn't have a picture that day, um, but I do this time. 
There he is, Stefan Edberg. There's my hero from when I was growing up, uh, the tw- Swedish tennis player. Any other fans here? I'm feeling like there's not. Up the back, thank you, Trudy. You can always count on... Trudy, thank you. Excellent. Uh, Stefan Edberg had his posters up. In fact, I'm convinced I probably had that poster. I bought his tennis shirts when I played tennis. Um, I just, he was a fair player. He was a good man. I didn't know him, but he was a good man. I could tell. That's who I wanted to become when I was growing up. Probably when I was about Jasper's age, actually. He's just turned 10. Um, uh, now, Jasper, when he was younger than he is now, he wanted to become someone as well. Um, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say anything more except I'm just gonna show the photo. There he is. Now the clue is in the tie, the red tie. When you think of a red tie, who do you think of? Donald Trump. Thank you, Jasper. He still remembers. Jasper, when he was younger, and this is probably about three years ago, he had this thing because Trump was all over the TV probably, and he wanted to be Donald Trump. So he demanded, he demanded a red tie. Uh, the glasses were an extra, uh, but he demanded a red tie because he wanted to be like Donald Trump. I'm not going to comment any further because I'm not going to get into politics. Um, but he saw it, he liked it, and he wanted to be like him. So he got his red Tie. We're going to look at uh, a couple of stories today in the Bible, and we're going to look at them um, quite quickly but quite closely. Um, so if you've got your Bibles, by all means, get them out. I'm going to have them on the screen now because we're going to move quickly, especially through this first story about we become what we worship. This first one is it is a really interesting story. Um, Solomon provides us so much so much for us to learn from, and sometimes we actually miss some of the biggest things from his life. So my question at the beginning was, do you like who you're becoming? If your answer was yes, great. The rest of this sermon is a warning to watch out for. If the answer was, I'm not sure, or the answer was, do you know what, I'm not really content with who I am becoming, these couple of stories hopefully provide some wisdom for you to correct that. So Solomon is a great example of a complex life of living with God. Generally, when we talk about Solomon, what do we think of? Shout him out. Wisdom. That was my number one answer. What else do we think about? What else did he do? Queen of Sheba. Anything else? The temple. He built the magnificent temple. And the other thing that he was known for is that he brought peace and prosperity to the land. During his time, there was next to zero, there was almost zero warfare. So in 1 Kings 4.25, it says, so Judah and Israel lived in, a, in safety, everyone under their own vine and fig tree, from Dan to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. What a glowing reference to begin with. Peace and prosperity under Solomon, all the days of his life. If you track the story through First Kings, though, it gets a little bit more complicated than that general overview. Let's have a look. First Kings 3, 1. Like I said, we're going to do this quickly. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. It's unusual, marrying Pharaoh's daughter. When we think of Pharaoh, who do we think of? 
What story? Moses, Egypt, the enslavement. Egypt being the system of oppression, everything that God didn't want in a kingdom. So that's an interesting start to Solomon's story. But look, a couple of verses later, Solomon loved the Lord and followed all the decrees of his father David. Okay, we're back on track. He loved the Lord, following all the decrees. 1 Kings 3, 7 to 10, a few, few verses later. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made me king instead of my father, David. But I am like a little child who doesn't know what his way around. Give me an understanding heart or a discerning heart so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. Here is the wisdom coming. The Lord was pleased that Solomon asked for wisdom. So God replied, because you have asked for wisdom in governing my people with justice and have not asked for a long life or wealth or the death of your enemies, I will give you what you asked for. Love Solomon. There's humility there. He doesn't know what he's doing. God, you're going to have to help me be king of these people. Give me wisdom. And God gives him wisdom. All right, a couple chapters later. He, this is about building the temple. The entire building was completed in every detail by mid-autumn in the month of Bull, I'm going to pronounce, during the 11th year of his reign. So it took seven years to build the temple. This was the temple, by the way. When the temple was destroyed and they replaced it, it was never as good as the original. This was the original, the one that Solomon built. Now, it says it's the next chapter, but this, that was the last verse of chapter 6. This is the first verse of chapter 7. So literally the next verse, it says, Solomon also built a palace for himself, and it took him 13 years to complete the construction. What is really interesting about the author of the book of 1 Kings is he never passes judgment on Solomon, but he points out a lot of observations nice and neatly in some of the language that he uses. So he builds God's temple, and it took seven years, and he took 13 years to build his own palace. It's an interesting little observation, one after the other. 1 Kings 9, 15 to 20. All right. So this gives a bit of a summary of what Solomon's been up to. This is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple. Had you noticed that before? The forced labor Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple. What is conscripted labor? What's another word for that? Slaves. Right? There were still some people living in the land who were not Israelites, including Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. These were descendants of the nations whom the people of Israel had not completely destroyed. So Solomon conscripted them as slaves and they, were, and they serve as forced laborers to this day. Forced labor, slaves. Solomon building the temple after everything Israel had been through. 1 Kings 9.3 it balances out again. I've heard your prayer and your petition. I have set this temple apart to be holy. This place you have built where my name will be honoured forever. I will always watch over it for it is dear 
to my heart. Complicated story. Right? Couple more. First Kings 10, 14. Each year, Solomon received about 25 tons of gold. This did, not, this did not include the additional revenue he received from merchants and traders, all of the kings of Arabia and the governors of the land. Solomon built up a huge force of chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horses. He stationed some of them in the chariot cities and some near him in Jerusalem. When you think of chariots and horses, who do you think of? Egypt, Pharaoh. Chariots, horses, and when it says he stationed them in the chariot cities and some near him in Jerusalem, what is the equivalent of those cities today? It's just stockpiling weapons. Cities built to stockpile weapons. First Kings 10, as we go on, Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Cilicia. The king's traders acquired them from Cilicia at the standard price. They were not exported to the kings of the Hittites. They were then exported to the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. It's basically an arms dealer. He's buying them from Egypt. He's selling them to others. It is a complicated story. But we're getting towards the end. And what does it say? This man who... God granted wisdom to when asked, this humble young king who built the Lord's temple. First Kings 11, 1 to 4. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. I mean, that's nice remembering of David, wasn't it? He's the perfect, perfect man. Verse 6. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. Complicated man, complicated story. I know when I grew up, all I heard was the good stuff. Wisdom, temple, peace, serving over a united kingdom of Israel and Judah. Do you know what happened after this? It was, unified. It was never unified again. They self-imploded after his passing. Solomon and Israel literally became that which they had escaped from hundreds of years earlier. Solomon became what he worshipped. In some part of him, he would have known the story of Egypt, about the oppression, about the miracles, about the deliverance. And rather than learn from that as a way of not to live, through the influence of all of these things, it's, it's like, like he's, he's setting, setting up Israel to be a new Egypt. Egypt. Marrying the, the, poli the political marriages. Stockpiling the weaponry. I love how it says, though, 
that he never fully turned away from God. In both of those underlines there, it says, instead of being completely faithful, or in verse 6, he refused to follow the Lord completely. And herein lies the first warning for us. Because it's never, it's very rare that it's an everything or nothing when it comes to a relationship with God. That can maybe happen, but it's rare. Often it is a slow, steady creeping towards him or away from him. And therein lies the danger of us and of our church. Who are we being transformed or conformed to? He never turned away from God completely, but he let other things creep in and take God's place bit by bit. So when I ask, who are you becoming? And do you like the person you are becoming? If you weren't sure if you answered no, maybe because your attention has been misdirected. You still come to church, we sing and we praise, but maybe your eyesight has been directed towards other things and you still follow God, but you do not follow him completely. We come into the house of the Lord, but our heart, time and energy belongs somewhere else. Martin Luther said this about idolatry. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Whatever your heart clings to or relies upon, that is your God. Another way of saying that is wherever you find your security, that is your God. Wherever you place your hope, there is your God. Solomon's journey is a warning for us that our life with God is a journey. It is not a one-stop shop of where we are in favour with God and the next day we're not and we're back in. It is a boiling pot of water sometimes and then we find we've boiled the frog and we're distant from God, much like Solomon was. We let other things creep in to replace God. Here are a couple of things that Solomon, I believe Solomon let creep in and that are some really common ones that can creep in to our own lives. None of these are bad in themselves, which is really important. None of these are bad in themselves. The issue is the place with which they hold in our lives. Our job. Maybe Solomon got hung up on being the king, the bravado of being king, the ego of being king, and he saw Pharaoh and everything he had, and he wanted to be like that or better or more. Sometimes we can become defined by our job. By what we do, we become defined by what we produce. That is empire thinking. That is the thinking of Egypt, that we are only defined by that, what we can build and make. What we can produce becomes most important in our life. Money and things. Solomon had a lot of money and things. You may find yourself wanting what others have 
or greed taking hold in what in wanting what others have, in desiring more things, because that's going to make you happy. If only I could have these other things, then I would be happier. Or I look at my friend and I say, if only I had things like them, my life would be much easier. There's nothing wrong with money and things, except the place with which they define us and have hold over us. Power and control. This is... None of this is new, right? These are the age-old traps to fall into. Power and control. If you have been misdirected in your view, people start to become things by which you achieve your goals. They become pawns in your little chess game. I, I want to create this. I want to build this. I need people to do it. And they are just pawns in my little empire that I'm building. It can happen in churches very, very easily. It can happen in organisations and it happens all the time. The seduction of power and control and the lies that we tell ourselves that it's under control and God is still my number one, but we would do anything to keep it and to keep hold of it. And lastly, relationships. Loved ones become objects of our pleasure or lead your heart to divert from God when our relationships, like Solomon, Elevate to a level more important than God in our lives. They can either become objects or they can divert us away from God's calling on our life. None of those things are wrong in themselves or bad in themselves. It is the place and the hold they have over us. Does that make sense, church? So what does a life look like? with these same things when God is still number one. Because it's not like they just go away. They're just different. A job, instead of becoming about what we produce, becomes a vocation to serve others, to show others the character of Jesus. A vocation that reveals who God is. Money and things is a, is a way not only to sustain our family, but to be a blessing to others and to the church. Power and control gets flipped upside down in the kingdom of Jesus, doesn't it? Because it is about helping others, serving others, to set them free to live a meaningful life for the purpose that God has for them, not my own purposes, but the purpose God places on their life. And relationships. Relationships become a reflection of God's love for us, which we then love onto others. All good things. And when God is at the center, when God is at the top, they are a blessing to those around you. So this is the first big idea. I mean, there's only meant to be one big idea, I understand that. Um, so you know there's more than one. The first big idea. Ultimately, like Solomon, we can become distracted by building our own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. Churches become empire builders. Organisations can become empire builders. We can build our own little family empire rather than God's kingdom. So what is the remedy for this? Uh, the remedy is very simple. Seek first the kingdom 
of God. Jesus said those words, just seek his kingdom first. Because we become what we worship. And Solomon's life is a warning for us that even though we can become be followers of God, we can stray and not be completely following him. Okay, okay. so that's the first big idea. Are you with me? All right. That was really down. Okay, you're not with me. Okay, church, you with me? That is part A. We're moving on to part B now. Okay, so part two is this. If we are going to become who we worship and we want to become like Jesus, who we worship, we need to know who Jesus really is. Because if we have a bad reflection of God, if we have a misunderstanding of God, if we, have, if we don't know who Jesus really is, we are going to reflect someone not intended. And I think of some parts of the world who are very Christian, and I say that in inverted commas, and if I grew up there, I'm not sure if I would be Christian because their version of Christianity is not, looks nothing like I read in the Gospels. So we need to make sure we have the right image of God. There is a great story. So we're back in the Bible again. Exodus 32. What is Exodus 32, Bible geeks? Hmm. Okay, golden, golden calf. calf. Um, all right. We're going to have a look at Exodus 32, and we are going to learn some words. We're going to get our little Bible nerd bit out of the way, okay, right here. So let's read this, Exodus 32, the story of the golden calf. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know... What has happened to him? So Moses has gone up the mountain. He's taken too long. The people are getting restless. And it says, come make us gods who will go before us. Now, you might see the little A on the screen. What that little A means is that, you know, there's a number of translations that that could be, um, and we've gone with gods. So that word gods there is the Hebrew word Elohim. Can you say Elohim. And the only reason it gets translated is depending on the context of the verse, is how they use it. Because Elohim could refer to God with a big G. Our God that we serve. God with a big G. That Elohim could be translated as that. It could be translated as God with a little g. Or it could be translated God with a little g, plural, like they've done here. Same word. How it gets translated depends on the context. I mean, just for the record, I think they got it wrong. Let's see why. Verse 2, Aaron answered them, Well, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. That's why we don't wear jewellery, guys, right there. Okay, so all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast into the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. I've been very strategic here and I've made the next part really big. To emphasize. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. There's a little B there. You know what the little B is now, right? Because it could be God with a big G, it could be God with a little G, or it could be God's plural, little G. What? And I, and I want to see if I can get an answer here. That 
bigger sentence there. Why is that a strange sentence? That is a weird sentence. These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That sentence is weird because they know that this calf that they fashioned didn't bring them out of Egypt, right? It's not been that long. I don't think they truly believe that the golden calf brought them up out of the land of Egypt, right? So other translations will actually say, this is your God, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Little g, not plural. The reason I don't think it's meant to be plural is because they only made one calf. They made one golden calf. So other translations will actually say, these this is your God, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt, this golden calf. What a strange sentence. They know it's not. So when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. You've probably picked up, I've emphasised that for a reason. This is another really strange sentence. Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Lord in capitals. Does anyone know what Lord in capitals means when you see it in Scripture? Yahweh, the name of God. That cannot be translated any other way. There is only one way that can be translated, and it's Yahweh or the highway. That's what I say. Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. There can be no mistranslation of that. There is no other options. That is Yahweh. Whenever you see Lord in capitals, that is what it is. It is unmistakable. And so they have built this calf, have built an altar, and tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord, Yahweh, who is the one who brought them out of Egypt. What a strange story. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Burnt offerings, fellowship offerings were offerings that God taught them to do. These are not pagan offerings. They are both offerings that God taught them to do. And what did they do afterwards? So they've done their burnt offerings, they've done the right things. Afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, I won't translate revelry any further than that. But when they say revelry, there is a lot of images and things going on there that make up that word revelry. I don't know if you're picking up what I'm putting down there at all, but I hope you do. Revelry doesn't mean pineapple juice and haystacks for lunch. So tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord with burnt offerings, fellowship offerings. But after that, we're going to sit down, we're going to eat, we're going to drink, and we're going to indulge in revelry. People often make out that this story is about Israel worshipping another god. This story is not about them worshipping another god. I think it's really clear... They know who brought them up out of Egypt. They know the God who brought them out of Egypt. They are still talking about having a festival to Yahweh, to the Lord. All they have done is create a God in their own image. That's what they've done. 
They've taken a bit of what they learned from Moses about the Lord. They've taken a bit from what they remember from Egypt. They've got a golden calf. It's tangible. They can touch it. They loved the revelry. Maybe that went alongside of that, but they liked the festivals. So they've just created a God that they want. They've taken a bit of this and a bit of that. And here is what we come up with. People make this about worshipping an idol that is completely independent of the God that they were getting to know. And it's not the case. The beginning of the Ten Commandments say, you must not have any other God before me. So this isn't about having another God before him. It goes on to say, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or in the earth or in the sea. So they made an idol, but they called it the God who came out of Egypt, whom they had a festival to the Lord, whom they sacrificed burnt offerings, which is about surrender, devotion, commitment. They then presented a fellowship offering, which is about thankfulness for the blessings in their lives. And afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and indulge in revelry. They created a God in their own image. They mixed and they matched And they came up with the best version that they could. So when I ask you who you are becoming, we need to have the right picture of God so that God doesn't just become a reflection of ourselves. So I've got a mirror here. And so what the Israelites gradually did was just turn the mirror upon themselves. And their God became a reflection of themselves. So if we are becoming more like Jesus, if we are becoming more like the living God... We need to know and have the right picture of who he is. Because if we get it wrong, we're going to reflect something really different and not intended. We are going to create a God in our own image. So if you are to think about your life, if you are to reflect upon who you are becoming... Who or what does that reflect? Who or what does your life reflect? We may not be aware of it, but we may be doing the same things ourselves where we say, I am a follower of Jesus, but I still want to live the way that I want to live. And I love it when people say, because God just accepts me for who I am. He absolutely does, but he doesn't want to leave you that way. Because he loves you too much. He absolutely accepts you for who you are, where you've been. It doesn't matter, but he doesn't want you to stay the same. Paul says it really clearly when he says, we are being transformed into... I just realised that was really in your eyes. I'm really sorry. Um, That's quite funny. Um, Not for you, uh, for me. He doesn't want to leave us where we are, though. Because we are always becoming someone. 
is little wonder when we create God in our own image that our religious experience is dull, poor, boring. God's not doing anything because the image of the God that we have is wrong. Some people's image is that we're here just waiting for the second coming, that God loves us, he died for us, he rose again so that we could live and now we just need to wait and play the waiting game. It's wrong. Each and every day he is urging us through his Holy Spirit to transform us into something new, more like Jesus. So if your Christian experience isn't what you thought it would be, maybe think about your view of God and who he is. Maybe you've created a God in your own image. So what is the answer? Ephesians gives us a nice little summation here. It says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. I'm going to close with this final thought. Why do you think God was so angry they worshipped that idol, that golden calf? I'll tell you why I think. This is the second and last big idea. The reason I think God was so angry at Israel for worshipping that golden calf is not because they were worshipping a different God, but because they had not only fashioned him incorrectly, but they had also removed their own high view of themselves because we are God's image bearers. The Bible says in the very beginning that we are created in the image of God. Nothing else under heaven and earth is created in God's image except for us. And so when we make a golden calf, when we fashion a God in our own image, we not only disrespect God, but we disrespect our own value that God has placed on us. We are God's image bearers. We are the ones set apart to reveal God's character to the world around us. No one or nothing else has that privilege in all of creation. So if you want to answer the question of who you're becoming, look at what you worship. Look where your heart lies. Look at where your devotion lies. You may not have completely turned away from God like Solomon, but other things have crept in. Maybe you fashioned a God in your own image. You've taken a bit of what you love from here. You've kept a little bit of what you love from over there. And you've created a God in your own image and you need to bring it back to the one, to the Saviour, Jesus Christ, the perfect image of God. It is my prayer that we let our lives be a reflection of Him. So when we are asked the question, who are you becoming? We say we are becoming like Him. Not through my own strength, not through my own power, but through the Spirit of God. Amen, church? I'm going to invite the musicians up. They are going to sing an item for us to close, the song called Captain. 
And the reason I love this song and for this message is that sometimes we view God as distant and over there. And this reminds us that Jesus is our captain. He came down for us. He is on our team. He is on our boat with us and for us. He is not a distant God. The very image of God came down and walks alongside us. He is our captain.